You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We're still doing our Skype thing, um, as you can see if you're watching the YouTube. Um, things, have, things have been a little nuts, but we're, we're keeping it together. Uh, <laughs> trying to <Don't>, anyway. <laughs> don't say that. It's like, you know, winging a prayer over here. <laughs> so. Well, that's basically what I got on this end, kind of, I think. Um, but um, before we get started, I just want to say I... Between last week and this week, I did get a chance to listen to uh, to answers giant. I was about to say, "Here come the giants." Yes. Uh, I don't know where <laughs> that came from. Um, I think I was doing. They might be giants. Here come the ABCs in my head somehow and combine the two. Um, answers to giant questions. You're giving me funny looks here. <laughs> don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Anyway, you know I don't. That's that's. Far from the point. I listened to uh, <laughs> Tim's. I listened to Tim's podcast, and it was really good. Um, I listened to the three episodes that were out almost in a row. Um, but there was an episode, a new episode. As I was listening to the first one, I got a notification that a new episode of Tandem Legends came out. Came out, so I had to listen to that uh, between the first and second episode. But I say all that to say this: go check out uh, Answers to Giant Questions. Good show, mm-hmm. lots of fun, and. Uh, I I really enjoyed the first three episodes and look forward to, to hearing more of those. Yeah, we need to get Tim on the show and actually talk to him so that yeah, people we've, can we've be never, introduced. Yeah, we've never actually spoken in person. <laughs> so yeah, we need to get him all, and Josh. <laughs> him and Josh, because Josh is with Tending the Net, so we're in our nets. Yeah, jo- yeah uh, Joshua. Joshua, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's it's a struggle. I I have a hard time with that one. I, I've I've had so many friends named Joshua who go by Josh, and I'm, we'll get there, Joshua. Yeah, forgive us. Yeah, it, so it, it's it's endearment. It, it's not disrespect. It's endearment. So you know <laughs> that works. So at least for me, I don't know. You'll have to see if it stands up for him. Um, but that being said, I guess we should get to what we're here to do get to our own show instead of talking about everyone else's. Um, anyhow, uh, we are in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not, we're not in the Bible. We're reading through the Bible. <laughs> it's still very early for me here. I've, I, I have to go into work later, so I'm trying to get the ball rolling early, and I, my coffee hasn't fully kicked in. So we were in Second uh, Samuel, but now we're going to Psalm 51 to take a little break from things, and uh, because we wanted to, as we set up the study, Emily and I talked about, we wanted to, uh, as we went through the the narrative text, to bring in prophetic books and uh, psalms and things that were corresponding to the timeline as best right. we could. Uh, we may not catch every single one, but we're definitely going to try to do that when it's applicable and uh, preferably interesting. Um, right. so that being well, said, always, Emily, what? It's always interesting. Well, the yeah. question is whether it fits. And this is actually a psalm that actually fits very well 
because traditionally Psalms 51 is believed to be the psalm that David wrote in repentance after his sin with Bathsheba, after killing Uriah, after getting many of his soldiers killed, after leading Joab astray. I mean, so this is this is his repentance. And um, so it's fitting that we bring it in here. And it's also been, a, like you said, a bit of a break because Second Samuel is just ruthless. And it, it's a brutal right. book. And so we've got these horrific events with David and Bathsheba. And we've got the whole sex scandal. And we've got rape. We've got murder. Well, the next story is Amnon and Tamar, where we get even more rape right. and murder. <laughs> and Yeah. And actually, one thing I wanted to, um, to, to mention, I don't know that we that this was brought out um, because we are talking about David and Bathsheba. And I know we're going to be talking about those events. One of the things that you pointed out is, number one, Bathsheba was not on her roof in the text. David was on the roof. Um, the other thing is, um, you're talking about when David got up, uh, that he got up in the evening. Now, knowing from other people's stories, um, David probably is possible. I'm curious, did David. Did he know? Was this like a thing where he was like, typically on this day, especially like you said, there may have been bathing in public even at certain mm-hmm. places. And, mm-hmm. and you may have known like, hey, on this day at this time, there's this... All the ladies gather. <laughs> all the all those single ladies. Uh, no, all the ladies <laughs> are out there doing their thing, uh, you know, bathing. And so they're around this particular time because it would make sense, you know, if you're in a hot climate to bathe in the evening before you go to bed. Mm-hmm. So it's, I just kind of, I've wondered about that uh, since we've been going through the story. Is this something that, and I don't think there's necessarily a biblical answer, but it's oftentimes that you don't just wake up and go, oh, it's time to, you know, go sleep walk with someone else's wife. <laughs> well. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. We don't have a biblical answer to it. Uh, I don't want to act like we do. But, you know, you, you do have certain rhythms that you fall into. And I think anyone who's ever lived in town, you know, you kind of get the idea when the neighbors do this and this is when the neighbors do that. And you don't even really consciously process it sometimes, but you kind of get used to those rhythms. And mm-hmm. so it, it very well could be that he was actually, you know, facilitating this uh, habit of watching, you know, watching out over the kingdom, which actually isn't bad in and of itself as far as like a king just surveying the kingdom and making sure everything's running well and running right. But, you know, where there's power, there's the potential for abuse of power. And sure. so how how far do you take that? And uh, what is from just an innocent glance and noticing something and then moves into something sinful? Those, those are questions that we have to ask ourselves on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, it's so easy to cross that line Especially when you look at the, the progression of David's story from Mephibosheth to Hanun, where we go from this, this idea that he is um, trying to think of the right words, but you know, he, he's gone from misplacing compassion from one side to the other, I mean, it's from Mephibosheth to, to Hanun himself. So I think there's some really good points to be looking at as far as our own personal progression and whether or not we should be 
um, guarding our hearts against the, you know, just the way sin seeps in. Because mm-hmm. like you said, most of the time you don't wake up and go, oh, I'm, I'm going to go sleep with somebody else's spouse. That's just not how I think most of us, our brains work. I hope not. Um, but at the same time, that's, that's something that David was not guarding against, obviously. So um, that's the reason why Psalms 51, you do get this. It, when you put them together, you get this great contrast. And you get to see how there really is a change in David's heart. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to going through, through Psalm 51 and looking at some of the things that um, are there. Now, we kind of did some setup on the superscription last week. Uh, we talked about, uh, you know, how you date the psalm, whether or not it was uh, written at the time of David or whether or not it was written later. And we're going to talk some more about that this week. Um, I'm trying to remember what all we did talk about because it's been one of those crazy weeks. So even though it wasn't that long ago that we recorded, um, but we're going to pick up and we're going to, we're going to talk about some more background because there is a lot of stuff with this. There's a lot of tradition surrounding the Psalm. So the the first thing I want to point out is that it is a song of lament, but it's a very unique song, Psalm of lament. Typically, when we get a psalm of lament, we have the the psalmist crying out against injustice, um, asking God to to bring down his judgment and wrath on an enemy to right some wrong that's being done to the person. There's no mention of any kind of enemy in Psalm 51. It's all about David or, you know, whoever the psalmist is, their actions and no one else's. I mean, it's very much a psalm of personal responsibility. And one other note about the superscription is that the ESV, um, for lack of a better word, kind of bungles the translation. Uh, Robert Alter actually points out that this is a barbed pun. Uh, He says that um, he he translates it completely differently than, than the ESV does. Now, the ESV says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went into him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. Now, I actually I didn't go with Robert Alter's translation here. I thought Nancy de Classe Walford, who is part of the uh, New International uh, Commentary on the Bible, which I absolutely love, I thought she had the best translation. It says, to the leader, a Davidic um, poem, I'm sorry, a Davidic psalm, when Nathan the prophet entered to him just as he entered to Bathsheba. So you, you get that, that very close parallel of this entering in uh, and the idea that uh, the the two acts, the prophetic word and David's sin against Bathsheba kind of have a parallel in their impact and in their ferocity even. So the, the importance of this is that whether or not David wrote the psalm, whoever wrote the superscription believes that this is an accurate way to perceive the psalm. He, he is viewing Oh, I'm sorry, David's actions. He's viewing David's actions as an act of violence. He's viewing David's actions as sin, specifically sin against Bathsheba. And so this becomes even more transparent whenever you, you realize that Nathan's words to David were to depose him. They were to rip away everything that David held dear to him, the throne, his legacy, his family. And so Whoever wrote the superscription for um, this psalm is telling us how we're supposed to read 2 Samuel. 
And so if David's, if Nathan's words are devastating to David, which we know they were, then David's actions were devastating to Bathsheba. So it really does, even though it's a superscription and it may not be a part of the original psalm, it tells us what the earliest editors of the psalms thought about this particular psalm. And it really sheds some insight on how to, um, how to read it. Now, of course, the rabbis did not like this translation because, uh, you know, David is supposed to be great and wonderful. And we're supposed to make sure that everything he does might be a little gray, but it's never completely black. And right. so, <laughs> yeah, they, they soften it. They say that just like David and Bathsheba met in a bedroom where it was private, now the side of the public. This is how Nathan went to David, so that the rebuke was private and it kept from humiliating David in public. However, the problem with this is when you read the public ramifications of Psalm 51, you realize that this repentance is taking place in public. So David isn't worried about being humiliated. That's not the problem. And the, the idea, though, that, that sex and prophecy are connected while it seems kind of incongruous to some, it, it's very, it's very much in keeping with the prophetic tradition. Um, you know, you can look read through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel sixteen, which we're not going to do here, and you'll see very quickly that the prophets often use very graphic, very brutal sexual imagery to to point out the the impact that God's word should have on the listener. That it's supposed to strip you bare. It's supposed to leave you vulnerable, even more so than a sexual experience would. So, so they use these very just brutal images and words to, to jar their listeners and to come to terms with the fact that an experience with God is supposed to be that profoundly intimate. So we'll uh, get into the text now. And I always hear... Um, was it Steve and Annie Chapman? Were they the, the ones that had the mom had the tape of when we were kids? Um, Something like that. I think that's what they were. Is that... Yeah. Yeah. Husband and wife, they, they sang and they had a version of uh, Psalms 51. So uh, I always, the first line, it's always set to music in my head because you, when you, when you grew up in rural Oklahoma and you're poor, like we were, you had limited tapes and records and what have you. <laughs> well, yeah. And it was I mean, yeah. It's farm life. Exactly. <laughs> so you wore them out actually. So so the ESV, we're going to look at the first line. It says, "Have mercy on me, O God." Now, Art Scroll, uh the Jewish translation uh says, "Show me favor, O God." Um Alter translates it, translates it, grant me grace, O God. Um, so you can see right away we've got some variation in the but translation. That grace didn't happen until the New Testament, right? Uh, well, that's actually... I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about that because, yes, that is actually um, some of the, the commentaries and uh, even uh, the podcast I listened from Dresha. Uh, which they've got some great uh, uh, podcasts too, not affiliated. Uh, there's a lot of Hebrews. So if you don't know Hebrew, they might be a little difficult to follow. But uh, the, the rabbi who teaches one of their classes actually points that out. This is not a new concept, a New Testament concept. This actually flows throughout the Old Testament. So um, 
But we're going to talk about why that translation between uh, grace and mercy is so important. Um, we're going to look at the second line now. It says, according to your steadfast love. That steadfast love is chesed. We've already talked about that. That was the element that is uh, present in the story of Mephibosheth. That's the the element that's uh, present in the story of Hanun. And, you know, all the events leading up to Bathsheba and then in Nathan's prophetic word to David, remember that the rich man did not have chesed on his, uh, for his own, uh, sorry, for the poor man's sheep. He had chesed on his own flocks and that's why he didn't kill any of his own animals. And what David's doing here is he's providing a contrast between, if we believe it's David who wrote this, it's a contrast between the chesed that David had for those under his care and the chesed God has under his. And so we're, we're supposed to be making these contrasts, even if David didn't write it, because this is how the editors, the earliest editors who gave us that superscription, ha have framed this. And basically it's saying God can have mercy and chesed on people or compassion um, and grace because of who God is, not what the psalmist is and not who the psalmist is. So 1C uh, says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now, Alter actually uh, says, with your great mercy, wipe away my crimes. So this word for mercy in line C is totally different than the word for mercy in the first line. So in the, in the first line, it usually is translated, this is a word that we have that's translated as grace, not mercy. So when, so even though I've got the Stephen Annie Chapman song stuck in my head, have mercy on me, O Lord, that's not a great translation. We, we want that distinction. Hebrew is very notorious for being very repetitive. So when there is a difference, it, it's done for a purpose. Even though we might have uh, you know, English synonyms that would work for either word, it doesn't matter. We want to keep that rhythm and flow of the Hebrew poetry because that's part of how they telegraph what's significant within that poem. So the word in this line, in line C, it is usually translated, uh, well, it's often translated as womb. So the idea of, you know, where a child develops. And there's over 30 verses where, where it's translated this word. And including those verses that we looked at about the the firstborn opening the womb, that's the same word. And it's also, uh, it, it gets this change to mercy and not translated as womb, specifically when we're talking about an attribute of God, which I think is very interesting that when we're talking about it as an attribute of God, we change it to mercy. But the other times it, it is a part of the, the human anatomy. Um. I'm sure there's been some really interesting feminist theology uh, studies done on that. Uh, I didn't go into it. But I think what we're seeing is actually a setup for what's going to be said in verse 5. Because in verse 5, we're going to talk about birth and conception and all of this stuff. And so if you already start planting that image in the mind of your listeners at the very beginning with a word that can have this dual meaning, which is another element of Hebrew poetry that you have words with dual meanings to evoke this, this really vivid imagery. Then whenever you present a contrasting image, it's going to stand out even more. So um, 
David's language here, it's in the strongest sense. It's all very imperative. Um, he, he's really he's really speaking out of desperation. He, he's in so much distress. And, and you can hear this if you really take the time to, to listen to how he's, he's phrasing it. And he's making this appeal, appeal from that place of distress, but also because it's his birthright. Remember 2 Samuel 7, where God is talking about David's family being adopted into God's family. So as a son of God, as someone who's been adopted into the family, he has his birthright, which is really great news for those of us who are also in God's family. So verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me can, can carry this idea of purify me. Um, we, we, overall, we have four cleansing terms or cleaning terms. Uh, grace and mercy, be gracious, that's included in there. Blot out this idea of abolishing, completely doing away with. Wash me. That one really doesn't need any commentary. Cleanse me. Purify me. And then we have three words for David's actions. There's transgressions, iniquity, and sin. And all of these words that, of David's actions carry the idea of violations against God and God's word. So the, the root meanings for, the, for those words uh, are to go against or rebel. That's, that's what transgressions means. It, it's not just, oops, I'm sorry. It's, it's rebellion. And we already know that rebellion is, it carries significant consequences within God's kingdom. We saw that when Samuel went back to Saul and he says that famous line, for rebellion is as witchcraft. So we, we know that rebellion, rebellion just has a lot more baggage and, and rightly so than transgression. I think when we use a word like transgression, it doesn't have that same punch that rebellion does. Right, right. So the second one, iniquity, it means to twist or bend, to pervert something. So it's not just, again, it doesn't have that same punch that uh, we do if we were speaking plainly. I think sometimes the, our, our Bible language or Christianese kind of gets in the way of how visceral this language really is. Yeah, well, and I want to take just a minute and say something that um, probably won't be popular with some people. Um, but um, first off, this part will be popular. The Bible Project does a really good series called Bad Words of the Bible, where they talk about sin, iniquity, transgressions, and what, uh, what, they, say, what they say about iniquity. And, of course, transgressions means just breaking trust. Um, now, if you take that and put the rebellion uh, piece on it, then it's, you know, more of, sounds a little more deliberate. Mm -hmm. But then on the iniquity part of it, um, it's really funny because the word in English actually kind of has the same meaning, literally, as the word in Hebrew. It's unequal uh, mm -hmm. or crooked or mm -hmm. things like that, treating people unfairly. Um, and so it's really funny to me, and this is where it's going to get unpopular. <laughs> and this is where I'm examining a lot of my, uh, beliefs and application of scripture and how we're supposed to live out our faith. It's really popular in a lot of, especially fundamentalist groups to, uh, to, to really, uh, put down social justice, um, to put down people who are are striving for equality and things like that. And 
they're like, well, the Bible doesn't talk about equity. I'm like, but it talks about iniquity. This 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 the same root word mm-hmm. that equity comes from. Right. And the Bible talks about it all the time. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, we, we haven't understood what that word means mm-hmm. because we do this thing with Christianese where we take <laughs> words from the Bible and we, we invent these ad hoc definitions <laughs> for everything so we can live however we want. And yeah. that drives me insane. And uh, the more I see this stuff, I'm going, there are so many things I was taught just completely backwards, completely wrong. And it's like, yeah, the Bible does address inequity. Mm-hmm. Iniquity. You know, let's actually look at what the book says, what the words actually mean, because it's not just, you know, and when you talk, you know, you talk about blotting out iniquity, it's take those, the places where my ledger has uneven treatment or, Mm -hmm. you know, bad exchanges, Mm -hmm. blot them out. Let's make it right. And so there's, there's. There's a lot to that. And when you start unpacking it, like I said, I'm still really wrestling with how this applies to my faith and what I am supposed to be doing with this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, but something I just want to throw out there, it, you can't just dismiss this, you know, the, the idea that, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not a, a social justice warrior type person, but I do think there are many areas when we do need to treat people with the same kind of respect and love because they are made in the image of God mm-hmm. that we often deprive them of. So anyway, that's my little rant about that. Well, um, and, and we've, we've made social justice about political programs. We, yes. We haven't made it about an expression of our faith and religion in our individual lives. So, you know, we aren't out here saying, oh, you know, we need to be socialist because so many people hear social justice and they go, oh, socialism. Uh, That's not what we're talking about, because when you get over to um, the prophets, which we're going to be talking about those as we move into the other kings more and more. Social justice is at the core of their message. And it's it's the big part of, of what they have to say. The reason why Israel is in exile is because they aren't protecting the widows and the orphans and taking care of the poor and the oppressed. And this is the reason why Israel needs a Messiah, because these mm-hmm. things are happening in the world. This is why we need a Messiah, because these things are happening in the world. It's not just about this abstraction of we're going to go live in heaven and play harps and have wings. Uh, that's a completely wrong uh, idea anyway. I, but, I was told I was going to be in the new earth. Um, and I, I'm <laughs> right. good with that. Well, you know, God creates, recreates the earth. I mean, how much more amazing can that be? But yeah, the, the idea that we actually bring God's reign to this earth through chesed, loving kindness, that covenantal love. And this is what David is talking about here. He's saying, I didn't do this. This, I, I wasn't acting this way. I wasn't doing what I should be doing. And so now this needs to be set to right. So yes, the books need to be balanced. And we're going to talk about, I can't wait till we get to this next verse, not this next verse, but another verse, because this flows right into what you're saying. And so, you know, these, these words here, what David is saying about himself, I mean, this is unflinching self-examination. It's being so real. now. That there's a lot of theological um, uh, dancing that goes on with this, where they want to make like one-to-one correlations that you know David's 
um, transgression was what he did with Bathsheba. The iniquity was with Uriah. And, you know, okay, it's really hard to make that case from the scripture. Uh, it, to get that specific, we might be looking at the trees a little bit too much and missing the forest uh, whenever we try to do that. The point is, David is, he he's he's using this poetic language to say, I recognize how bad I have been. I recognize the evil mm-hmm. within me. And, you know, it's not real popular today for us to look at ourselves and say, I recognize that I'm flawed. I'm broken. I have evil within me. Um, those are hard things to admit about yourself. But I mean, we know that this is necessary. I mean, you can talk to any psychologist. You can talk to anyone who's gone through AA or any of the, the self-help programs. Uh, what is it? Uh, celebrate Recovery. The first thing you have to do in order to start healing is to admit you have a problem. And this actually goes back to the Gates of Repentance book that I referenced last week. That's the first principle. You have to know. I, I, sorry, it's principle 15. You have to know. I'm messed up. I mean, why would we even need God or want God if we didn't recognize that we're messed up? So verse three, speaking of knowing you're messed up, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. So principle one and 18 of the gates of repentance, in order to regret, you must know what you're regretting. Um, And so this is not a polite apology on David's part. It is that brutal examination of the truth of his condition and his absolute need. Uh, Verse four, we're going to look at the first line says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, this echoes what David had said to Nathan uh, back in 2 Samuel 12, 4. You know, I've sinned against the Lord. David's sins are obviously against others, okay? We, we, we don't want to omit that. No, I, and, I am curious. Is, is this one of those verses where when they try to hyper-literalize it, uh, they try to use that to get David off the hook for uh, uh, anything wrong he did with Bathsheba? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, that's one of the ways actually people try to take this away from the psalm being about David and Bathsheba. Uh, okay. So the idea of removing completely the, that David shouldn't have done this. Uh, and again, putting the, our biblical heroes on that pedestal that they don't belong on. And so and we can make a list. Not only did David sin against Bathsheba, he sins against Uriah. He sins against the other soldiers who were killed so he can get Uriah killed. He sins against Joab, the messengers. I mean, this has had a massive impact within the kingdom itself. It's not just limited to David and Bathsheba. The, the ripple effect just, just flows out. And we have to keep in mind, sins against humanity are sins against God. Because if we can't see the other person, like you were talking, the other person as being created in the image of God, then we're never going to recognize how we should treat the other person. Um, Shout out to Carmen Imes on this one. Um, I always forget uh, bearing God's name. Uh, Why Sinai Still Matters. I always want to mess up that title. Such a great book. And I'm, I, I keep reading it in like little, little pieces because you just kind of have to stop and, and, and chew on it. Uh, so if you want a really great book uh, to do a Bible study with, um, forget most of your other popular teachers. Just go with Carmen. She, she's got good stuff. 
Um, but, you know, we're, we're all created in God's image. And that's what we need to be seeing when we look at each other. Because when we honor our fellow human being, we honor our brother or sister, we're, we can, we're honoring the image of God within them. And the other aspect of this is it's a consequence of free will. Because if our actions don't carry any weight in this world, then free will has no consequence and is functionally non-existent. So while the wording reveals that David has this unity, this relationship with God, and that humanity has this unity with God, it denies the, the tendency to conflate God with the creation. So a person's individual decision is not equated with God's decision. David is saying, what I chose was against your will. What I picked and decided to do with my life was not what you would have had for me. And so he's making that distinction between God's desires and his own ability to choose for himself. And the terminology here also connects us back to Genesis 39.9. Now, this is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. When Joseph resists Potiphar's wife, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So mm-hmm. the, the word here um, in Psalms 51, this evil that, that David has committed against God in wickedness in uh, Genesis 39.9, they're the same. And so in both uh, cases, they're, they're usually translated as sin. Um, and the, that wording is important because it specifically connects us back to a sexual sin. We understand Potiphar's wife was trying to, to lure Joseph in to a sexual sin. So even if David didn't write the psalm, we have that connection back because linguistically and based on the Torah, this is how the original audience would have perceived it. If David did write the psalm, then this is basically a confession of what he had done was a sexual sin. And he says, I have done what is evil in your sight. This phrase connects us right back to 2 Samuel 11. Remember the ESV had translated that last verse in 2 Samuel 11, but the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. And I griped about how horrible of a translation that was. Literally, it says David had done what was evil in the sight of God. So now you've got this connection back with David, back to what he had sent, the message he had sent to Joab, do not let this be evil in your sight. Remember, David had tried to determine what was good and evil. He tried to make the decree as a king. And it also connected us back to Saul and connected us back to the book of Judges. Now David in this psalm is saying, God's the only one who gets to determine what's right and wrong. He's recognizing he can't and should not overstep that boundary between God and king, humanity and divine. He, he's recognizing the proper roles. So very important when you keep those words consistent within the translations so you can see those connections. So verse 4b, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Okay. Obviously, God doesn't need to be justified or blameless. He's God. He's automatically blameless because when you're the sovereign creator of the universe, everything you do within that universe is right. And so you, there's, there's no condemnation in that. But knowing 
David's transgressions. God would know David's transgressions. God's keeping David's transgressions before his eyes. The, the, the idea that these things happen only when you're in intimate relationship. A, a God who's withdrawn, a God who, who is not part of creation, not interacting with creation, wouldn't have any human's sins before his eyes or transgressions before his eyes. And what David is saying is not that God would be justified to David or, or to himself, or to, but that the world would see and know that God is justified in his action, that the world would know that he deserved to be judged for this. He deserves punishment because he does, he's done what's wrong. God has said what he has done is wrong. And so God has decreed punishment for him. It's fitting that there be punishment. So this is the fun verse. Um, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Probably the most disputed verse in all of the Psalms. Uh, Christians have notoriously used this as an attempt to prove original sin and total depravity. Um, we're going to get there, but because the, the history for that actually predates Christianity, at least to some extent. Um, we're going to look at some, some Jewish commentators and their words on it. Um, the, the most famous Jewish commentator is Rashi, and he says that this verse proves that sex is the catalyst for sin. And so in order to conceive, you got to have sex. I know, shocker to some of y'all. But um, Ibn Ezra, he says that the evil inclination enters the hu human being at birth, and good inclination only appears when a person who is matured. Now, now, the, those are Middle Ages rabbis, so we don't know how far back these views go. They may or may not reflect earlier traditions. A lot of times they do, sometimes not, so you kind of have to take them with a, a grain of salt. Another rabbi, uh, whose name evidently I forgot to write down, also from the Middle Ages, uh, suggests that this is David's way of excusing himself. That he's saying, hey, you know, since a component of who I am, I am completely depraved, uh, I'm full of original sin what have you. And so I can't help it because this is just how you made me. I'm not culpable for the things I do that violate your word. Now, however much we might want this to be an argument for original sin, it, it creates a problem because most people who argue for original sin will tell you that the sin nature is passed down through the father. David's not saying anything about his father. He is actually saying his mother is the one in sin. And so uh, it doesn't really work as a good argument for original sin. And matter of fact, the, the rabbis picked up on this and they said that this is actually evidence that Jesse, sorry, my nose is itching, Jesse, David's father, was one of the four sinless people who lived on earth. We've talked about that before and actually got to enter into paradise without any kind of um, Due process, if you will. Extra now, paperwork. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which in my book, that, that counts as purgatory. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But they had to figure out some way. And this is, this is the fun stuff. Okay, we're getting ready to get into some rabbinic lore here, guys. 
and I want to point that out, that what we're getting ready to talk about does not have any basis in Scripture, but it's such a fun way of trying to explain the verse that I, it shows us how far people are willing to go to, to massage Scripture to make it fit their narrative. And if you know me, this is one of my pet peeves. <laughs> and right. and I, I think it's good. I like looking at how the Jewish commentators did it because it, it makes it easier for me to spot when I see it in Christian commentated, it, commentaries. Blah, I can't even talk. Um, right, right. And so, even sometimes in your own thinking. <laughs> a, a lot of times in my own thinking, you know, because if you kind of come up with a standard and say, uh, you know, you can't read that in there, then if the other person's not allowed to do it, then it's easier for me to say that I shouldn't do it. So, um, okay, back when we were talking in Second Samuel, and I believe it was chapter 10 with Hanun and the son of Nakash, uh, we talked about how David had sent these comforters, these servants to Hanun because Nakash had done some kind of kindness for David. And the Bible never tells you what it is. And I never went on to explain what it might be because we, we're going to talk about it now. Um, so the story goes that uh, David's mother, who in the Talmud is named Netzavet, very interesting name. Uh, she's never named in the Bible. We just have it in the Talmud. This, that she was a concubine of Hanun and that she had had two daughters with Hanun and then later she goes on to marry Jesse. And so David is the half brother of um, Hanun, son of Nakash. So this is why Nakash was so nice to, to David was because David was the half brother of his daughters. Now, the problem is since David's mother had been the, um, uh, Nakash's concubine, and then went on to marry Jesse, the, the brothers scorned David. This, and again, this is the story that the brothers would scorn David and they looked down on him because, you know, he wasn't completely Jewish. He wasn't a full-fledged member of Israel. Or even worse, he was possibly even the son of Nakash himself, imposing as Jesse's son which we see some of that uh, story picking up on some of the elements within David and Bathsheba's relationship uh, in this retelling. But the story has some merit in the fact that it would explain why David wasn't summoned when Samuel summoned Jesse's sons to be anointed for king. It also explains why in Psalm 69, David talks about being estranged from his brothers. And it also would explain why David's top generals were not the sons of his brothers, but the sons of, of his sisters. Because remember, uh, Joab and Achish, and I forget the other, Abishai, uh, they, they're the sons of David's sisters, not his brothers. And that they were believed, in, within this narrative that we're talking about here, they were believed to be the daughters of Nakash, not the daughters of Jesse. Now, the Bible never suggests that one at all. But we, you know, like I said, we're exploring ex possibilities. It also gives us some interesting symmetry when the idea when David had run away and was hiding from Saul and he hid among the Moabites. Because mm -hmm. now he would have been hiding with Jesse's family. But then 
also he would have been hiding with Nakash or his mother's family. So it it kind of balances out the narrative. Now, another variation of this is that Netzavet was not Hanun's uh, concubine. She was actually a very good Jewish girl. And Jesse got to feeling bad about the fact that he had married her. Because remember, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth, the Moabite. And so he believed that by having sex with Netzavet, that he was actually defiling her and causing her to break Torah. So he decides that he's never going to sleep with her again, and instead he's going to marry her servant. And the servant was a Gentile, so she would have been permitted to, to Jesse as a Moabite. The problem is that Netzavet really loved Jesse, and the servant really loved Netzavet. And so they decide to swap places. And you can see where the rabbis are picking up on the Rachel and Leah narrative here to, to fill out the story. Now, Netzavet in this, this story becomes pregnant, but Jesse doesn't know that the child that she conceives is David, and he believes that she's committed adultery. So the rabbis here are now picking up on the Tamar narrative, and he's unwilling to see her die. So he decides to raise David as his own, but the brothers still look down on David, again, helping us understand why there's an estrangement between David and his brothers in Psalm 68. Now, Netzavet is said to have borne the shame her entire life and just never spoke up and explained what happened. So she prayed to God to be vindicated and to be justified in the eyes of, you know, the people in her community and her family. And that when Samuel identified David as Jesse's son at the anointing, this is when she is vindicated for remaining faithful. Again, none of that is within the scripture. Those are just some fun ways that people have tried to explain why David's mother might have been in sin. So, you know, it may have been that she was a concubine who became Jesse's wife. Unlikely, because remember in this book, if a woman had been a concubine or married to a king and another man takes that woman, it's the same as trying to take the throne. So you can't imagine that Nakash would think too favorably of David. So that's one reason why I don't think that one works well. Um, the other problem with it is that there seems to be no indication that Jesse ever views himself as less than worthy. Uh, he actually had, we talked about some of his, his uh, personality traits that show up within the story when we were looking at 1 Samuel. Now. Just reading the text, what's here, it looks like David is blaming his mother for some kind of sin. We don't know. Uh, we have no idea what it could be. But I think it's really the third possibility in how we should read this. This is poetry. This is over-the-top language. This is mm -hmm. hyperbolic speech. This is David saying, sin has pervaded all of my being. It's been a part of my existence since the very beginning. I live in a sinful world. I am a sinful person. And I think to read more into it than that is going to take some textual support we just don't have. Right. And if we, you know, if we try to make it say more than what's there, then we're, we're out of line. Uh, I do think, though, that within that possibility, David is setting us up for a contrast with 
verse 6. He says, Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, inward being is found only twice in the Bible, and it's this idea of being covered up or concealed. Uh, we find it in Job 38, 36. That's the other time we find it. Uh, it's a description of the clouds where um, he said, Job, um, it's God's answer to Job. It says, who put wisdom in the inward parts and given understanding to the mind? And the idea that these clouds, you know, the, there's all the stuff happening within the clouds that can't be seen. But then the rain falls, the lightning strikes, the floods occur. So you, you have this inward working that has an outward expression. Uh, the verses are connected with this reference to wisdom. The idea that truth, wisdom, and understanding are inside the inner being, in our hearts and our minds. They're shut up. They're concealed in those inward parts of who we are. And this is the places where God works and reveals himself to humanity. And it's these, these encounters with God in these inward places that produce outward results. And they don't end with just an inward event. I mean, so often we, we talk about religious experiences being private and personal. And, you know, you keep those to yourself. We don't talk about religion and politics in, in proper society. But this is the idea of something that begins as hidden and then makes its way into the world. So if you take these two, two verses together, five and six, you, you have being brought forth in iniquity, which has to deal with conception and labor. Um, then you, you have it contrasting with delight and desire for truth also from the inward part. So you, you begin to line these, these verses up. You're conceived in sin. So you have the, this act of, um, of, of an intimate act that's done in private, contrasting with being, and also desire and the sexual connotation, contrasting with the line to cause me to know wisdom, to know, to have this, this intimate experience with. Both inward acts have this outward progression. So I think David is making this connection that even though, yes, there's sin that happened, you know, when he was still concealed within his mother's body, that yes, there was sin whenever he entered the world, it surrounded him, but God was even within that. And so the, the other reason why I think these go together is if you read through this psalm, this is the only two, these are the only two verses that begin with the exact same word. In the ESV, mm -hmm. it's behold. So I think that the, the two verses need to be addressed together. Now, what I found to be very interesting is almost automatically every commentator divided these verses up. They did not read them together. Whenever, typically, when you look at Hebrew poetry, when you have that repetition, it's a sign you need to be paying attention. So behold, I was brought forth in iniquity would go with, and you delight with truth and the inward being. So the, those two would go together. And in, and in sin, did my mother conceive me? And you teach me wisdom in my secret heart. So, so you've got, again, the, it's the idea that as a, I mean, I see it very clearly as a woman, my children were hidden. And, and what happened within me was hidden. And yet it comes forth. So that's, that's where I think we should land on those two verses, not some kind of um, great theological statement as far as original sin or total depravity, but this theological statement that 
every encounter with God should be intimate. And so this is, and this has been supported since the beginning of the psalm, and we're going to continue to see how it works out. Verse 7. Oh, you had something to say? Yeah, I was going to, I was going to say, um, before we move on from, uh, what was it, verse uh, Six. 5. Oh, verse 5, okay. Yeah, too far from verse 5. Uh, this is just a commentary. My commentary on other people's commentary <laughs> is it's interesting to me how a lot of the people who critique Heiser's work and people who uh, hold to the Divine Council worldview, uh, one of their complaints about that is that Heiser uses, what, Psalm 82? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and one of the complaints is, well, the, he's doing a lot of theolo- putting a lot of theological weight on the Psalms. Right. But then they're doing the exact same thing with Psalm 51. Uh, mm-hmm. verse five. Mm-hmm. And so it's very frustrating to me. It's like, okay, so you can hyper-literalize this one, <laughs> right? but not the other one. Yeah. And so, and I realized that might be something that people could say, well, that's kind of the U2 fallacy, but it's also, well, yeah, it is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, the Psalms have a lot of theological things to say. I, I don't think we should discount that. And I'm not even think, I don't even think we're discounting that there's a theological message in these verses. We're just saying that the, the theological message here isn't so much about original sin. It's something that, that people weren't even thinking of at this point in time when David wrote this. We're saying that it has more to do with the impact and the, the uh, expression of what the prophetic encounter with God does. And so, you know, this is, this is intimate. This is real. This is personal. This lays you bare and it, 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 it becomes just as pervasive in your life as any sin that or sinful world you may have been born into. Right. And so by, by changing the, the emphasis from how do I support my, my theology to what, is the words, what do the words actually say mm-hmm. and how do they fit together, I, I think we get something that's far more usable. So verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Now, hyssop uh, is a plant. It's a, a scrubby little bush. Um, it's actually one of my favorites. But we find it frequ- uh, frequently mentioned in the Bible. Uh, we find it in Exodus twelve twenty two. It's the plant that they dipped um, in the sheep's blood for the Passover to paint it on the doorways in Egypt. In mm-hmm. Leviticus 14, it's used for cleansing the house and cleansing lepers, uh, the house with mold or the, the, where um, there had been some kind of mildew. Numbers 19, it's for the purification of the priests who serve in the temple. It's always connected with putting away evil, putting away something that's harmful or damaging. And so this, this plant has very close ties to the idea of um, limiting damage. Now, the Bible never specifically explains why hyssop is used. And I think that's very interesting because, you know, a lot of times we, we are told why certain symbols carry certain weight. But one of the things about hyssop is even at this time across so many cultures, not just um, Israel or Canaan or even Egypt, hyssop was already known as having medicinal value. Uh, it was used to treat digestive orders, skin problems, asthma, respiratory infections, a whole lot of things. Uh, it's considered to be one of the safest herbs for most people to use unless you're pregnant. I thought this was an interesting thing, especially coming on the heels of verse five and six, 
Mm-hmm. You don't use hyssop with your unless you're pregnant because it can cause contractions, which can induce a miscarriage or early uh, labor. And so this again, this is not medical advice. Let's be clear on that. Uh, don't use any oils, plants, whatever, without consulting your doctor or midwife. Um, but hyssop would have been something that David's audience would have immediately understood as having the these medicinal cleansing, purifying, um, limiting properties without having to be explained. And so David's able to communicate so much with just this great economy uh, of words and symbols that, that we, we might miss because he's saying, hey, my soul's sick. I, I need to be healed. I need to be purified so I can re-enter sacred space. That's why you used hyssop, so that you could re-enter sacred space. Uh, Mm -hmm. I need to be protected from death, so it's going to pass over me. Uh, I need the truth and and wisdom that you have put inside of me to be revealed. Uh, He's being very rich with his imagery here. But then he narrows his focus. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. It's not enough that David washes himself. He asks that God washes him so that the cleansing can be complete. Now, Isaiah 50, um, uh, sorry, Isaiah uh, 116 picks up on this language, whiter than snow. He tells people to wash themselves and lays out the proper conduct for God's people. In verse 17, he says, remove the evil from God's eyes. So again, we got that in the sight of the Lord uh, language going on. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct um, oppression, bring justice to the faithless. There's, we're talking about the social justice again. Plead the widow's cause. This is what what Isaiah says is good for God's people to do. And then in verse 18, God says, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So in other words, do what you know is right, then come talk to me. And, and that's when the stain is removed. When you talk to God, when you, when you come to God and you have this conversation and you get rid of the evil in your own life you, and you sit down with God and say, this is, this is what needs to happen so that the relationship can be restored. I need to, to address my own actions, but I need to recognize that no matter how much I do, no matter how many good works I do or how much evil I stop doing, it doesn't, it, it's not enough. I'm never going to be able to do it for myself. I need you to intervene for me. And so that's what David's doing. He's bringing all of his sins before God. He's reasoning with God within this psalm. He's saying, hey, here's the reason why I can call out for mercy. And it isn't, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, God, that Bathsheba was naked or she wore yoga pants or whatever. He, he, he's saying, I messed up. He's not blaming anyone else. And he's saying, I'm the one who, who did wrong because I am this evil person. But at the same time, you're a good God full of grace and mercy and love and compassion and that chesed. And, and so this is what I need from you. I need you to be who you are because I happen to be who I am. But I know it's also my responsibility to, to stop. To, to become more in alignment with who you want me to be. And so 
David's not claiming any right to this because he deserves it. He's claiming this because God is a God who's faithful to forgive. And that's that's the hope in this, and that's the beauty in that. So, man, verse 8, I've got lots of notes on verse 8, so I think I'm going to... to um, not go into verse eight. <laughs> well, I'll say let's, yeah, let's save that for next week because we're we're running right about the hour mark here, mm-hmm. and so that seems like a good place to to break, especially if you got a whole bunch of notes on the next one. And uh, we'll pick this up next week and uh, see where things go. Lot, lots of stuff there. I yeah, had to process and and work through, but and we're not even halfway anyway. through the chapter yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Well, that's that's the thing when you get in the Psalms, they're so dense and because it is that poetic language that I mean mm-hmm. it, it's there's you can go a lot of places with it. So, um but yeah, I'll be looking forward to that and looking forward to doing next week. And I just want to say everyone thank you for joining us and if you want to be part of the conversation, hit up Raven Creek SC uh on social media, ravencreeksc.com where you can find us and the previously mentioned shows. Uh, Tending Our Nets with Joshua Sherman and uh, Answers to Giant Questions with Tim Stedman. Uh, Tim, once again, we're glad to have you on board. Listen to the show. I really enjoyed it. And also check out Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. And last but not least, um, uh, Commentarians <laughs> with Joe Zaragoza, sometimes Emily, sometimes me, and other guests. Um, got a lot of good stuff going on there lately. Go check it out. And, uh, In the meantime, I guess we'll see you on the internet. So, thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.